I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in T.O., a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. On today's episode, a new flashy tower just celebrated its grand opening, and it really does add a certain, should I say quoi, to the city skyline. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of something or someone, and I just can't quite put my finger on it. Speaking of flashy towers, one of Toronto's most recognizable is celebrating a milestone as well. And then you'll learn more about the history of Valentine's Day in Toronto, because as it turns out, the city's founder, John Graves Simcoe, was a bit of a romantic. That's all coming up on Today in T.O. Toronto skyline in the late 1960s, you'd see the Royal York Hotel, a few other low-rise buildings, loads of train tracks, and two tall, dark, and handsome towers. At that time, these were the Toronto Dominion Bank Tower and the Royal Trust Tower. In 1967, the TD Bank Tower was the tallest building in Canada. Of course, another building would soon take that title, and more on that in a moment. But keeping with TD, in 1974, 1985, and 1991, three more of these towers went up. Now the TD North, TD South, and 222 Bay. No offense, but those are boring names. From this day forward, I hereby declare them as the Black Beauties. Though collectively, Along with the tower at 95 Wellington, this parcel of land, a full city block, and handful of buildings made up the Toronto Dominion or TD Centre. It's been said that the TD Centre represents one of commercial real estate's most comprehensive branding systems. The font is sans copperplate gothic, which is meant to reflect calmness and order. And to this day, it's used on everything from directional signage to artwork captions to designated smoking areas and fire hose cases. In fact, as the TD Center was built atop the path and a host of underground shops and restaurants, they wanted the branding to extend below ground. In the 90s, though, tenants wanted more visibility and more control. Even the green that TD Bank uses is very intentional. It's trademarked TD Green, and it's used on all of their logos. And it's a specific color for neon as well, which you'll see atop a few of their buildings. And when you look up at the logos on the facade of the two black beauties, you can tell the person you're with that those went up in 2015 and were controversial at the time because they went against the minimalist vision. I would wager that the minimalist vision is long gone because a brand new Toronto skyscraper called TD Terrace at 160 Front Street West is causing some chaos. Now, this building has an interesting look. It kind of reminds me of something, though. I can't quite put my finger on it. It's been under construction for about five years, but it officially opened at the end of January. TD Terrace houses TD and the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan as primary tenants, and the building is owned by Cadillac Fairview and Investment Management Corporation of Ontario. But what does it remind me of? This is going to bug me. 
TD Terrace is 47 stories tall. It's got a modern look, curved glass, and exterior lights that can change colors with large illuminated signs or billboards. And that signature green. The building is kind of an unusual shape. Um, You know, uh, you could liken it to a Gumby, perhaps. Gumby. That's it. The TD Terrace resembles a green humanoid from Howdy Doody and the Gumby Show. That was Alex Bozakovic, architecture critic at the Globe and Mail. And I wonder what he thinks of the new TD Terrace. I am not a fan. If you look back at the TD Center, which TD built in the uh, late 1950s and early 60s, uh, together with the Bronfman family, those black towers, which at one point really dominated the skyline of, of downtown Toronto. Those are some of the most beautiful modernist buildings in the country. And, you know, they hired the German-American architect uh, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe to design them, who was incredibly fussy about the details. He is the guy who supposedly said less is more. And, you know, you look at those buildings and they originally didn't even have signage on the outside. They were just these like really nicely proportioned black slabs. And the banking hall, as it's called, the branch bank at the corner of King and Bay, again, is this this kind of, you know, very subtle, very quiet, perfect temple of money. And we've come a long way from that, what is a very sophisticated and subtle aesthetic to, you know, billboards that are, you know, going to shine your eyes out. Right. So this building is like the complete opposite of the less is more. This one thinks more is more. It's like the building equivalent of all caps. But that's kind of the style right now if you look across other city skylines. It's an unusual form. And I think what we're seeing in this building is kind of the the vibe that the architects have brought to buildings in some other cities, including Shanghai and including Dubai, where you know, contemporary skyscrapers are really flashy and where there's a lot of stuff going on, including bright lighting on the outside. And so what's happening now is that people have complained about the lights, which has prompted a review. City planning is looking at this now, trying to figure out whether these bright lights are allowed or not. But I think a lot of people were surprised by the number of lights and the scale of lights on this building. And it is really hard to miss. Um, and this is a city where many aspects of new buildings are you know, very tightly controlled, you know, subject to all sorts of regulation and discussion. And now, you know, this thing is lit up like something from the midway at, a, you know, at, a, at the exhibition. And somehow that seems to have, uh, have slipped through. There's also these signs or billboards. And so the city will be looking into that, too. Electronic billboards specifically are, are really closely regulated by the city. So it may be that we find out that they have sort of skirted some regulations here, uh, you know, and wind up getting in some trouble for it because we're dealing with this new technology. You know, LED lighting has gotten so much better in the last few years. It's cheaper uh, to run. You know, it's so much easier to uh, install and so much easier to get you know, images and different colors you know, with ease, you know, that all of a sudden there are these possibilities available that were not available a few years ago. So it might be that, you know, we're now seeing what the future of architectural lighting looks like. And, and the city has to figure out whether that's a good thing or not. Look, I don't hate the structure. I think it looks kind of cool. And I like the fact that it brings something different to Toronto's city skyline. I also think it's a really funny story and so very Toronto because Gumby and because there's a history here that lays some context for TD buildings serving quiet luxury in the past. While this TD Terrace is DTM, 
or doing too much. And while I can see it from my apartment in Greektown, that's pretty far from the downtown core. And so I guess I can appreciate how annoying it must be. It is going to be an issue because the city increasingly is mixed use, right? The downtown core, which was the financial district, which was a place where almost nobody lived, now has a lot of residents. And close by, there are thousands and thousands of people who live near there. And I think it is a legitimate issue to raise that um, because when people are living with this thing, uh, especially if nothing like it has ever existed before, I think there's a legitimate concern about that that needs to be addressed. Uh, And I think we may see that happen. Um, But I'm also really interested in this from an aesthetic point of view. So can we expect more of this, quote, style of building? And what should be considered from a design standpoint when it comes to creating mixed-use neighborhoods and communities? I think Toronto certainly is going to be changing in a lot of different ways that it gets to be a much bigger city. But for me, we really have to put an emphasis on what's happening outside in the public realm, in our parks and our streets, the places where everybody, you know, gets together. And those should be places that are lively and welcoming to everybody. I'm not so convinced that skyscrapers need to be uh, all that flashy. I mean, that's where Alex Bozakovic and I disagree. I love the flash. I want more. I can never get enough. And I mean... All you have to do is look one block away to see one of Toronto's most flashy. And that one has hit a bit of a milestone. So stick around. When was the last time you went up the CN Tower? I love the CN Tower, and I don't care who knows it. I just want to shout it from the top of the, well, I guess CN Tower. And you know, they get approximately 1.5 million visitors a year, but like a true Torontonian, I have not been up there in several many years. I just admire it from afar. I can see it from my bedroom window, which feels like I've won the lottery until I look around at the rest of my home. But I love how the CN Tower kind of follows you around. It's so tall and pointy. It seems to playfully hide behind other buildings. It marks a point of reference for those who might have trouble with directions. And when I go to other cities with weird, lanky telecommunication towers, I'm reminded of home. Now, I'm biased, but I do think that Toronto has one of the coolest-looking skylines in the world. There's depth, There are layers, there's color and artistry, there's playfulness and grandeur. It's like the mouth of a shark. Or, to pull a quote from a Death Cab for Cutie song, because at night the sun in retreat made the skyline look like crooked teeth in the mouth of a man who was devouring us both. How romantic, I think. Anyway, construction started on the CN Tower 51 years ago this month. On February 6, 1973, construction of the concrete tower began. And when it finally opened to the public on June 26, three years later, in 1976, it took the title of the tallest freestanding structure on land in the world. Look, Ma, no wires. It held on to that title for more than 30 years until Dubai's Big Bad Burj Khalifa was finished in 2008, though it surpassed the height of the CN Tower in 2007. Then in 2010, the Canton Tower in China surpassed the CN Tower as well. It is still the tallest freestanding structure in Canada, North America, and the Western Hemisphere. However, it's not quite considered a building because there are no floors. It's not like 
office spaces or condos. So that title goes to One World Trade Center in New York City. So to honor the CN Tower, here are some fast facts. The antenna was built in 44 different pieces and had to be hoisted using a helicopter. More than 1,500 contractors worked 24-hour days, five days a week for $8 an hour to complete the project. And it was dangerous work, not for the faint of heart or fearful of heights. In fact, there was danger pay included. And the higher you went, the more you'd get paid to the tune of an extra dollar for every 300 feet after 1,000 feet. There was, however, one fatality during construction. A consultant for the concrete inspection company named Jack Ashton was hit in the head with a falling piece of plywood, and apparently he died on impact, breaking his neck. Now, the CN Tower cost $63 million to build at that time, and I suppose it also cost the life of poor Jack Ashton, who does have a memorial plaque dedicated to him in the mezzanine. And the name, CN Tower, is short for Canadian National, as it was owned by the Canadian National Rail Company until 1995, and at that time, it was transferred to the Canadian government. Now, do you ever get the feeling that you're forgetting something important? Like a special day. It feels like there's something I should be doing. Oh, it's Valentine's Day, isn't it? Okay, well, I've got to step away for a minute, but on the topic of Valentine's Day, prior to founding Toronto, it was said that John Graves Simcoe sent the first Valentine ever in North America. You dirty dog, you. With more on that, here is producer Glenn Bergonier. Valentine's Day is synonymous with love and romance and is a tradition that goes back to the Roman Empire. But did you know that it also has strong roots to the founder of Toronto, John Graves Simcoe. See, back in the late 1700s, Simcoe was fighting alongside the British in the American Revolution and was stationed just outside of New York City. He was lodged with the Townsend family. And while living there, Simcoe fell head over heels in love with the family's daughter, Sally Sarah Townsend. And on February 14th, 1779, John Graves Simcoe dedicated the very first Valentine's Day to be celebrated right across North America to her. He wrote her a poem that goes as follows. And just keep in mind, he had nothing to build on before this. Fairest maid where all is fair, beauty's pride and nature's care. To you, my heart, I must resign. Oh, choose me for your Valentine. It's pretty good, right? He wrote that himself. But sadly, love is blind and sometimes is a complete mess and misfires because Simcoe professed his love to possibly the worst person he could have. While he was fighting alongside the British, the family he was living with, the Townsends, were secretly diehard American revolutionists and Sally was suspected of being a rebel spy. There are even those who suggest she might have been spying on Simcoe the whole time. So long story short, she rejected his love and his heart was broken. But that did not stop Simcoe from living up to his potential because roughly 20 years later, he founded what is now the city of Toronto and reportedly also kept his deep-seated misgivings and borderline hate about all things American until the very end. So technically, the founder of Toronto is the man responsible for bringing Valentine's Day to the new world. And in the process, he might have broken his heart and brought some jingoist feelings alongside, but 
it remains a day for lovers to express their feelings. Have I told you lately that I love you? Not in a creepy way, okay? But we're almost at the one-year mark of the podcast, and so I'm very grateful to have listeners like you. Please never leave me. I can change, I promise. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Chris Dunner and Andrew Durdford are advisors to the show. Join me again next Wednesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye.